0: Welcome to Sistery History, the podcast where we two sisters discuss a historical event or experience, but instead of facts and figures, we focus on the senses to offer a different perspective on things. In each episode, we'll take a few historical primary sources and have a lighthearted chat about sounds, smells, tastes. You get the idea. I'm Big Sister Laura. I'm Little Sister Caroline. We hope you'll find out something interesting you didn't know before, Or perhaps you'll think about something in a slightly different way. But mostly, we'd love you to have fun. Welcome to season two, episode two, The Body Politic. In this episode, we are getting political. Classical Athens is widely considered to be the birthplace of democracy, although it's fair to say that there were democratic elements in other Greek states at this time too. In the 21st century, we're perhaps most familiar with representative democracy, where decisions are made by a smaller group of elected individuals on our behalf. But classical Athens was a direct democracy. The people voted on policies themselves, elected officials, sat as jurors and served on the city council. Today, we're thinking about what your average Greek citizen would have experienced when they carried out these civic duties. Where did you go to participate? How did you vote? Was it noisy? What could you see? let's find out. That was us trying to recreate a water clock and you can see a photo of that on our Instagram and Twitter Mm -hmm. and all you need is a flower pot and a smaller flower pot. Experimental archaeology in action guys. So Laura we need to just caveat all of this right now and say that these privileges were reserved only for adult male citizens don't we? We do. So it wasn't exactly perfect equality in action no but it was something i suppose it was a good start and who is helping us along on our democratic mission today well we have our good friend aristophanes welcome back athenian comic poet and playwright not keen on the oracle mongers as we found out in previous episodes or politicians yeah that's true and he was active in the fifth century bce we have two new entries Thucydides, Greek historian, known as one of the first true historians, in fact, i.e. giving us a contemporary account of events that he actually lived through. And he was also kicking around in the 5th century. And we've also got Aristotle, Greek philosopher, known as the father of Western logic, which is a pretty good nickname. Also, he was pretty excellent at math, science, ethics, psychology, zoology, the list goes on. But basically a really good homework buddy. Or quiz companion. And he was around a little bit later in the 4th century BCE. And finally, I believe you have a visual source for us this week, Caroline. I do indeed, Laura. What is it? My source is a clepsydra or water clock. It was excavated from the Athenian Agora and now is in the museum there. I'm going to describe it for you first and then explain what it does. Okay. It's essentially an urn. How big? Well, I'd say kind of the size of a plant pot, a large plant pot, something but like that. plant pots can very much vary in size. Imagine you're planting a dwarf maple. That means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> the size can vary. This one is about 20 centimetres tall and 30 centimetres in diameter. Mm-hmm. It's got a handle on either side. And as you can see, Laura, it's got a very small hole under the top rim there. Mm-hmm. Then... At the bottom, if you follow that down, a beautiful little spout at the bottom. And on the front of the urn, you have the word Antiochidos, which is most likely a local tribe. Mm -hmm. And two X's Mm -hmm. is what we would call them. Yes. Now, this urn was used to measure time in the courtroom. So what would happen is the urn would be filled with water and it would always be the same amount of water. Thanks to that little overflow hole under the rim. And then the spout would be opened and the water would rush out into another urn, which is placed underneath. We have lots of literary sources supporting this, Aristotle, Aristophanes, Lysias. And what happened was a speaker in the courtroom, the lawyer, I guess we would call him, was allotted a certain amount of time that he was allowed to plead his case. And time was measured by these urns. The sense that I want to consider here is sound. Because you could quite literally hear time happening. And I know we kind of get that today. You can hear the ticking of a clock, for example. Mm. But here you can actually hear time running out. (laughs) Trickling away. (laughs) Trickling away. People still say I'm running out of time. Mm. And that's water running out. Oh, really? I think so. I I don't see why it wouldn't mean that. (laughs) Now, people might more often say time's ticking away, but I don't think I would. I would say time's running out. I would be more inclined to say time's running out. And I love this because both the speaker and the jurors or the officials who are listening can literally hear the time running out. Mm, I like that. So, when you hear the ticking of a clock now, you don't necessarily know where in the hour that you are. But with a water clock like this, the sound differences that it makes when the water is either full or coming to the end is very different. It would start off coming out of the spout quite forcefully, which would make a louder noise, a yeah. higher pitch probably, and the speed, so you could hear the speed at which the water was coming out. By the time the water gets lower in the urn, it would be trickling mm. slower and probably quieter. And it's trickling into another urn, isn't it? So it's when That's the true, it gets yeah. to the end, the water pressure is less. The sound that it makes when the water first starts running into the urn below, it might go Mm -hmm. at first. And then, you know, when a glass fills up, the pitch changes. Yes. When you fill it under a tap. Yeah. I imagine if it got to the top and (laughs) it's like I said, you can't normally know where in time you are, but you Mm. could with this water clock. Because the nature of the sound would change the nature of the water. That's correct. I'm imagining the countdown clock right now. I literally have that written down. (laughs) I said it reminds me of Countdown. Yes, it changes and it changes towards the end. Exactly. And I wonder if you're a lawyer and you're thinking, "God, my time's about to run out." You might start talking quicker. You might get a bit more stressed. You might. I've got to get to the end of my speech Mm. because I can hear that my time's running out. Yeah. Would there be someone monitoring the urns? Yes. Okay, good. Very important. Because the lawyer could then just start speaking louder to drown out the water and (laughs) stop. Well, that's an interesting thing as well, isn't it? So silence when the water stops, I guess everyone would be listening to see, oh, is there any more left? Suddenly there would be silence in the room Mm. to check that the clock had emptied, as it were. Now, what it reminded me of a bit was some people think of the sound of water as quite relaxing. Mm. Maybe even... Bathroom-inducing. Yes. Water features. They're a common element of ornamental gardens or relaxing landscapes. Water does tend to go hand in hand with relaxing, but I guess if you're a lawyer or even a juror in this situation, it might be quite stressful for you. I mentioned here that this has two X's on it. Yes. A unit of measurement for this is called a kuse. the letter X in our language. And a coos is just over three litres. So this particular urn, with two X's on it, holds about six and a half litres of water. Yeah. Do you want to guess how long six and a half litres of water takes to dispense? I do. I am going to say one hour. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. no. Am I too low or too high? Really high. Oh, okay. So (laughs) experiments have shown that one coos is about three minutes. What? So this particular water clock would last for about six minutes. Really? Depending on the case being argued, you get different, you don't just get one go of the water clock. Mm, Okay. You're not going to be making a very effective case in three minutes. The water clock was actually bunged up for calling witnesses. That didn't eat into your allotted time. Okay. Which is nice. Yeah. One of the sources gives an example where they're allotted 11 water clocks for their case. One wonders whether they couldn't have just found a bigger urn. (laughs) There may have been, I suppose, <laughs> an urn with, I don't know, maybe there were bigger ones that held three, four, five. I hope they so. I make have them. faith in the Athenian pottery economy and they could do that. <laughs> that leads very nicely on to my first extract, which is Aristotle and an extract from the Athenian constitution, section 68. And this is a description of voting in court cases. So it's linking into your courtroom theme. <laughs> and what I want to focus on here is sight. When the speeches are concluded, each juror is given two ballot balls, one pierced and one solid. This is done in full view of the rival litigants to ensure no one receives two balls the same. Two urns, one brass and one wooden, stand in the courtroom in distinct spots so that no one may surreptitiously insert ballot balls into them. In these, the jurors record their votes. The brass urn is for the effective votes, the wooden urn for unused votes. The brass urn has a pierced lid that can only take one ballot ball to prevent people from casting two votes at a time. A juror votes with his hand closed, so as not to show either the pierced or the solid ball to those present. You don't want to show a pierced ball to anyone. Good lord, no. Sights, then. Lots of stuff in this passage is all about the visuals, what you can see, and then at the end, what you can't see. Okay. At the beginning, Aristotle tells us that this voting activity is done in full view of everyone. Now, bearing in mind that juries were really big in ancient Athens, there could be anywhere from 501 jurors to 2,501 jurors. That's too many jurors, isn't it? It's a lot, isn't it? So there's always an odd number so that you don't have a tie. Fair makes sense but potentially 2,501 jurors. It seems unnecessarily large. Yeah. And then you've got to watch all of them put their balls in a box. Mm. And But the point is, you've got to see everyone doing it because the idea is that it's transparent, it's fair, it's equitable, and everyone is going through the same process and you've got that structure and it's, it's a visible demonstration of justice, fair process and justice in action. So the visual is really important. The two urns... Aristotle tells us that they stand in a distinct place in the courtroom. So he's saying that they're easily visible to everyone. They're not just hidden away in a corner. They're on show. So it's important that they can be seen. And then at the end, we have the invisible part of it. We have the jurors with the closed hands. You don't want people to be seeing what you're voting for and which ball you're putting in which urn. So people don't come and duff you up afterwards for voting against them. Exactly. In a dark alley or something, right? Could you have more than one ball? No. It's just one in each hand. One in each hand. Yeah. And you can't have two balls the same. The visual aspect is really important. Athenian democracy needed people to be present. It was an essential part of the process. So people went to the assembly in huge numbers. They went to the law courts. The juries were there in huge numbers. It was about being present and participating in society. That was really important. And if you weren't participating in that democracy and in the processes, then you were viewed with a little bit of suspicion that you weren't doing your civic duties. The Athenians are very proud of this thing that they'd created, this democracy. So if Mm. you weren't participating, then absolutely, you weren't playing the game. Also, question, question, if you've got 2,501 jurors, how big is your urn? Goodness, good question. Is it a double exon? It's gonna to need to at least take a mature maple tree. Oh, right, okay. I've got no idea how big maple trees are, I have to admit. <laughs> Should we move on to Aristophanes? Well, it's actually really apt that we're talking about Aristophanes next, because I am also talking about voting. This is an extract from Aristophanes' play Wasps. Wasps is about a man who is addicted. To voting in the law courts. Yes, I read this one. It's a goodie. He's addicted to being on a jury, Mm -hmm. partly because he gets paid, but also (laughs) because he loves being mean to people, it would seem. He loves doling out justice. He loves being seen to dole out justice as well. He gets a bit of a thrill from it, doesn't he? He gets an absolute thrill. And some of the imagery is quite sexual. (laughs) So he really does get a thrill from it, if you know what I mean. The chorus in this play, the chorus is a group of people. We've discussed this before. They are literally wasps. So they dressed as wasps. They're dressed as, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, they're not literally wasps. (laughs) Talking wasps. They're dressed as wasps. So they are also belligerent older men who have stings in their tails, doling out justice. Mm -hmm. To serve in a jury, you have to be over 30. Mm -hmm. So we did say at the top that it was for male citizens only. Yeah. This is for male citizens of a certain age. Mm. The main character, as we said, is addicted to serving on the law courts. This is Aristophanes Wasps, 93 to 109. He's so used to clutching his voting pebble that he wakes up with his thumb and two fingers glued together as though he'd been sprinkling incense for a new moon sacrifice. Oh, he did have it badly. As soon as supper was over, he'd shout for his shoes and off he'd go to the court and sleep through the small hours at the head of the queue, clinging to the doorpost like a limpet. And mean, he's so mean that he scratches the long line on his tablet every time they get a conviction. Full damages. Honestly, he comes home with enough wax under his fingernails to furnish a beehive. He's so afraid of running out of boating pebbles that he keeps a whole beach of them inside the house here. That's how mad he is. And the more you warn him, the more he goes to court. He loves it. <laughs> the sense. Oh, yes. Guess? Do you want to guess? I, mm, Touch? Correct. Boating pebbles to start with. Yeah. You, I'm you, sure you couldn't really keep them in your house. I feel like maybe the system changed as it progressed, as mm. it developed. Voting started with pebbles. But if you can bring your own voting pebbles, then you've got to have a steward at the front checking that everyone's only got one of each. Laura's just found her dream job, everyone. (laughs) Voting pebbles, I guess, small enough to fit in the palm because you want to hide what you're doing. Yeah, as we said in the last extract. Probably quite smooth from wear. Quite a satisfying weight to Mm. them. This particular man has his hand fused into a pinch he's physically frozen as a voter he's so into justice that his body is now reflecting it <laughs> with his hand it's got a claw hand got a claw <laughs> hand there's a lovely image of him sleeping at the door at the head of the queue clinging like a oh. limpet i'm imagining the Harrod sale you know when people camp outside or to get the tickets at wimbledon very similar and then the other element was the wax Now, this is a time where literacy may not have been very high. In fact, let's just be honest, it wasn't very high. The jurors were given jury wax tablets, maybe to make notes on if they could. But in this instance, he's talking about drawing out the sentence. So you listen to a case, maybe you've decided he's guilty, he or she is guilty. And then that extract there described drawing the long line. Mm. So a short line was for... You pay a few damages. Okay. And the longer the line, ah. the more damages they would have to pay. Right. Our chap in this particular extract, he likes people getting totally screwed for high levels of damages. And that's why he's got so much wax under his nails. <laughs> yeah. Because there didn't have to be that level of literacy, this shows the democracy in action, right? It's not just the elite taking part. Mm, so it jury. is truly accessible to your general citizens as long as you're over 30 and a man. And a man, yes. Wax also lingers under the nails, doesn't it? And also on the skin, it gives you that feeling. So you'd be going around all day, I guess. Again, that physical evidence of justice, of you mm. partaking in Athenian democracy. Yeah. It's literally in your fingers. Yeah. I also like the physical hands-on nature of justice, getting up, going to the urn, everyone's looking at you, putting the pebbles in, very physical. mm And Procleon here, who is our protagonist, his fingers are literally fused in the extreme version of this. (laughs) You're loving that part. (laughs) So a lot of touch going on. Yeah. In the assembly, they voted by show of hands. So it wasn't just pebbles and urns that were involved in the voting. But show of, can you imagine having to count everyone's hands? hands? Do you just do a kind of a rough, oh, it looks like there's someone actually counting? I really hope that there's no one actually counting. I feel like it's just a general. Okay, that looks about right. Yeah. Because there could be, if we're talking about the Assembly, potentially up to around 6,000 people attending that and being able to vote. Yes, we haven't talked about the Assembly, which is odd because we've both gone with law courts rather Mm. than the Assembly. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? So the assembly in Athens, any eligible male could attend. The council would provide the points of business and then the assembly would debate and discuss and vote where voting was needed. And it could be voting on a policy or an election or a law. At any one time, there are maybe about 50,000 people who are eligible to get involved in that sort of thing. And anyone can turn up and propose a law or speak, can't they? They can, which sounds very equitable but not everyone is great at public speaking. Not yeah. everyone has a loud voice. Not everyone is very eloquent. There were a small amount of people who were regulars mm. on the circuit, so to speak. On the after dinner <laughs> <circuit>. <laughs> yeah. Physically though, you could only, although 50,000 people were technically eligible, there was only about maybe five to six or 7,000 that you could physically get into the space. Now the space you're talking about is the Pnyx. It's the Pnyx. Pnyx, yes. So it's on a hill in Athens. The Greek word, pyknos, means dense or tightly packed. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) They They didn't want to make it a comfortable experience. No, they didn't. And they were quite happy to advertise the fact that it would be slightly uncomfortable. A lot of the sources talk about the red rope that would happen Mm. at a certain time of day when the assembly was due to start on the top of the Pnyx. The Scythian slaves, the city slaves, would block off the main exits and entrances to the Agora, to the marketplace. Right. But leave one open, which is the one that leads to the panics and then they would get a piece of rope, either dipped in red paint or red powder, mm-hmm. and herd people towards. What, so even the, if they, they didn't state. want to go, exactly. So if you're marked with the red, then it's bad because you were you did, dawdling. You were dawdling and you didn't want to partake in democracy. Uh, so there's lots of imagery in Aristophanes of people dodging the red robe, that kind of thing. OK, yeah. I mean, I think I get the vibe, though, from a lot of the sources that it was a popular thing to do. People wanted to go to the assembly because you got paid, as you mentioned earlier. Yes, pay came in later. That's true. It wasn't yeah. immediately there, was it? Yeah. Yeah, so it's on the top of a hill. You can yep. see why, and it's dense, you can see why people were reluctant to go. In the know, start. imagine in the summer, you know, the heat of July and August in Athens. It You're does not... start at dawn, though. True, but still, you're not one to trapes up a hill, aren't you? And then no. you're just stand there for ages, listening to people waffle on in the blazing not heat. Oh. Doesn't sound very relaxing. Not for me. No, I mean, also, you're not an early riser, let's face it. I was literally <laughs> about to say that. You won't seem out, definitely not before the crows No. <laughs> also, imagine you've got five or 6,000 people on a hill, probably a bit of chatting going on, let's face it. Yeah, the sounds of nature all around you. It's going to be pretty difficult to be heard, isn't it, when you're speaking? There was a speaker's platform, but yes, I guess but, you're right. I think I'm going to need more than a platform to get the message across to 6,000 people. I think you also got a hat. A hat? <laughs> a, <laughs> reef. a speaker's wreath. Well, I'd love that, but I'm not sure it's going to have any microphone capabilities. <laughs> Shall we call the final witness? Let's. Thucydides, I believe. This particular passage is where the Spartans are debating whether to declare war on Athens. So it's not Athenian elements we're talking about here, it's Spartan elements. And here I'm focusing on sound. The extract is from Thucydides, The History of the Peloponnesian War, sections 1.86 and 8.7. Vote, Spartans, for war, as our honour demands, and neither allow the further aggrandizement of Athens, nor betray our allies, and let us advance against the aggressors. With these words, the magistrate put the question to the Spartan assembly. He wanted them to declare their opinion openly and increase their desire for war. So after they made their acclamations, he said that he could not determine which had been the loudest. Their mode of decision-making is by acclamation, not by casting lots. Then he said, All Spartans who believe Athens is guilty of breaking the treaty, leave your seats and go there. He pointed out a certain place. All who are of the opposite opinion, go there. They stood up and divided, and those who held that the treaty had been broken were in a decided majority. So we're thinking about sound. We are, and I'll tell you for why. Acclamation voting. Shouting. Shouting. Shouting voting. Yes. So the Spartans loved to vote by shouting. (laughs) course they did a lot less refined some may say than the elegant little pebbles it's ever so spartan (laughs) so really it's coming down to who can shout the loudest Mm. you know making yourself heard which I suppose is also an element of the Athenian assembly because that's about being able to speak well but this is going to be difficult to call with this close competition so they would use acclamation voting for making decisions in the assembly but also for voting on officials, so elections. So if you got all your mates to come along when you were being elected to something and shout the loudest... Exactly. That doesn't seem overly fair. No, definitely doesn't, does it? So the elections that I'm talking about, what would happen would be that in one room, the candidates taking part in the election would parade up and down, and people in that room would basically shout for the one that they liked the most, right? And then there would be another room where the judges would be and they would listen and compare the shouts from that separate room. They're not in the same room? No, they're not allowed to see who the people are who are being shouted for. Oh. So they can't see because they're not, they're meant to be, I suppose it's impartiality, isn't it? Okay, right? I feel like it's right for corruption. Yes <laughs> <laughs> There's some elements that you think okay, that sounds quite fair, but yes it is right for corruption and difficult to assess I think mm. you know people have different levels of hearing without a decibel monitor how are you ever really gonna know? So this for me has a tendency towards the rowdy. I'm thinking House of Commons. Here, here! That here, here! Order. Yeah. You know when there's, uh, they just get a bit feisty and they all start talking over each other. It was quite a common feature of, of not just Spartan, but I think Athenian, that um, people would. Boo. If they didn't like something, they would heckle. Comedy stand up gig going a bit wrong on a Friday night. And if certainly, if there was a speaker or someone who was less experienced in this or more cautious, more nervous, then they're going to get overpowered by these rowdies. They're going to get ripped apart. I know. It's dog eat dog. It's pretty brutal. So you really want to be careful who your lawyer is, who your supporters are. You've got to pick the right team. Who do you want on your team? Oh, good question. Because if I were picking a quiz team candidate... Oh, a quiz team candidate? Mm-hmm. I will go with Mr. Aristotle, please. Yes, wise. So zoology, ethics, math, science, basically everything. All of the things that I can't top, cover. Top nerd. <laughs> when would you like a quiz? I think I'm prepared. Me and Azza. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked about today, which is quite interesting and does feature in Athenian democracy is ostracism. Every year, Athenians held a vote to decide if they wanted to carry out an ostracism, which was a banishment. Just they, once a year? Just once a year. So who do we want to get rid of? Yeah, do we want to get rid of someone? And if First so, who question. And then second question, if so, who? It's a weird question. Right? But the reason for it was... And it was usually reserved for prominent citizens who were being disruptive. They were being destabilising to the system, to democracy. Um, It was like a check and balance. So all present in the assembly could vote if there was to be an ostracism. And then who they wanted to get rid of, they would inscribe a name on a piece of pottery called an ostraca. Whichever name had the highest amount of votes, they would get chucked out. He shipped out. He shipped out for usually 10 years. Sometimes they got recalled. Depends. Maybe you've got time off. About 10 years. Don't worry about it. You can come back in 10 years, mate. So I have for you here five reasons for ostracisms. Okay. Some are true, some are false. Number one, this person was ostracised for generally being too luxury-loving and ostentatious. Number two, for profanity against the mysteries of a Number three, this person was ostracised because two other candidates, who were likely to be possible ostracised peoples, joined forces, sorted their stuff out and got that person kicked out instead. Number four, this person failed to prevent a key city from enemy invasion when they were in a military role. And number five, there was a fear that this person wanted to control the Delphic Oracle, which, as we know, is an important religious site. So these are five genuine things that happened. Some of them are related to ostracism. Okay, I think controlling the oracle, failing to protect a city, being too luxury-loving. Okay, so you got two. Not bad. Which is good. Luxury-loving one, correct. Guy called Megacles. Megacles was luxury-loving. Yeah. (laughs) Of course he was. And you also were correct with number four, so failing to prevent a key city from enemy invasion. The Delphic Oracle one was wrong, that was a ruler of Thessaly, but he was assassinated, not ostracised. So I'm not giving you a point for that. The profanity against the mysteries, that Alcibiades. he wasn't ostracised, he was condemned to death. And then the one that you didn't spot was when two other candidates joined forces to get the other one kicked out. So what is my score? Four. Four out of five? Yeah. Thank you, Aristotle. Otherwise known as 80%. Of course, well, Aristotle would know that. Thank you for doling out some democracy with us today. Why don't you join us next time? And in the meantime, remember to like, rate and subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. Bye. Bye.